Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading will be coming from Mark, chapter 3, verses 31 through 35. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. You know, last week we asked the question, what's your take on Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? The scene that we looked at in Mark chapter 3 drove us to ask that question. Because that scene in Mark chapter 3 presented us with three different takes on Jesus. Three different perspectives on who Jesus is. His closest family members said that he was crazy. The religious experts said that he was a con man, but he himself claimed to be king. He claimed, in fact, to be the son of God. So we asked, who was right amongst these three perspectives? Which one is accurate? Which take do you agree with? Is Jesus a crazy man, a con man, or is he king? We read a famous quote from author C.S. Lewis. Some of you may know who he is. He wrote many books. One of one series that you may be familiar with is the Chronicles of Narnia. Well, he wrote these words as he observed how, how common it is for folks to reject the concept of Jesus as God and say, I can't believe that he's God, but I do still believe that he was a good man and he was a teacher who's worth listening to. He, he's worth considering as a teacher and as an example Here's what Lewis wrote. He said, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So we asked, is Jesus a crazy man, a con man, or is he king? And really those categories are just a take on a version of what C.S. Lewis wrote. He asked, was Jesus a lunatic, a liar, or is he Lord? And he says, you have to choose. I mean, do, do you see any other real options other than these three? Are there any other real options? I actually think there may be one other option. One other. Someone might say, um, I'm not sure Jesus even existed. I'm not ready to call him a lunatic, a liar, or a lord. I, I think he's something of a legend, actually. I mean, I think he may have never existed, and, and even if he did exist, I don't necessarily buy that he performed these miracles or that he even claimed to be God. You might say, I have a hard time believing that he rose from the dead, certainly. 
the way the gospel said he did. So if that's you, you wouldn't necessarily say that Jesus was a lunatic, a liar, or that he is Lord. Maybe you'd say he, he's a legend. He's a, he's a construct of people's imaginations. I mean, over, over the, the centuries, people imagined, even if he did in fact exist, people imagined all sorts of fantastic stories about him. Maybe there was a real carpenter turned rabbi from Nazareth, but over time he's become this larger-than-life fictional construct. He's become this object of worship. So that what we have in the Gospels isn't so much a historical account as much as it is really mythology, a legend. I believe that, I believed that actually for some time. That was my perspective. But see if this helps at all. The, the Gospels, in fact, the Gospel of Mark specifically, is the, was the earliest Gospel written. It was written between 60 and 70 A.D., That means that when this account that we're looking at today was written, many of the people who actually saw Jesus and knew Jesus when he was teaching and healing throughout Palestine, they were actually still alive when the Gospel of Mark was written. They were still alive. That means that the details of this account were actually verifiable. Many living witnesses could could have been questioned and were questioned. Mark's account could be fact-checked and would be fact-checked. In fact, that's one of the reasons that the Gospels were written, both the Gospel of Mark and then later the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Luke, and the Gospel of John. They were written in part to prevent the spread of lies about Jesus of Nazareth. You see, because as time goes on, as time went on, and those original first-hand witnesses who knew Jesus and saw him, as they died off, eventually be easier and easier for lies to start to spread, for myths to start to emerge, right? Fables, legends. It would get easier for people to make up fiction about this carpenter turned rabbi from Nazareth. So to preserve the truth, to prevent fables and fiction from gaining traction, it was important for those people who knew Jesus firsthand to make sure that their stories were written down and preserved. And that's what the gospel writers did. Matthew and John were early disciples of Jesus, so so they wrote their gospels from their own first-hand experiences with him. The gospels of Luke and Mark were written based on the testimonies of other first-hand witnesses. So Luke and Mark would have questioned others and checked facts, and collect all that data, which leads us to let let them to write these accounts that we have before us now. So I I say all that to say, simply this, the historical record is very, very strong. In fact, we have more verifiable uh, uh, evidence that Jesus of Nazareth really is who the Bible says he is. We have more evidence to show that then we have evidence that many other ancient historical figures even existed. Ancient historical figures that we all know existed. We studied about them. We learned about them. Maybe you've read history books about them, heard lectures about them, 
Everyone agrees that Alexander the Great really was who he said he was, that he really conquered the world or part of but so, so much of the known world. We know these people were real, and yet there's less evidence to support their existence and their accomplishments than the abounding, overwhelming evidence that we have that Jesus not only existed, but that he is who he said he was. So I ask you to consider the evidence honestly, if you haven't already. <laughs> Even if you've believed in Jesus already, I encourage you to examine the evidence. It'll strengthen your faith. And I hope you'll see that Jesus of Nazareth is no mere legend, nor was he a lunatic, nor was he a liar, but he is Lord. And countless millions of people across the globe and across history, from many different walks of life, many different ethnicities, cultures, etc., have come to be convinced of that. And they've staked their lives on it. And they haven't regretted it. I'm going to ask you to pray with me before we jump into today's passage. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for being a truth-telling God who reveals yourself to us in the pages of Scripture in a way that we can trust, that we can believe, that we can even stake our lives on. And so we ask, Lord, that you'd give us eyes to see the reality of who you are. Give us eyes to see Jesus for who he is, your son, God himself, who took on human form to die and to rise again and to one day return to finish the mission that he set out on. We ask that as we read about him today that you'd fill our hearts with a, fill our hearts with a, not just interest in him, but a passion for him, a love for him, a full dependence on him. It's in his name we ask it. Amen. Amen. So this week's passage actually uh, continues last week's scene. Jesus, as we're going to look at him today, is in a house. It's a crowded house. He's teaching. He's back in this town called Capernaum. It's a town where he had previously been, where he had been mobbed. If you hear when we looked at that earlier part of, of, of Mark, we saw that he was mobbed by a great multitude of people, diseased people, demon-possessed people, all who, who, who came to him to be healed, to be freed. And he was surrounded by people once again as we look at him today in Mark chapter 3. He was so busy and so mobbed that it says he had no time to even pause and eat. By the way, this also happens to be the same town where powerful people wanted him killed. And so we saw last week that his family was worried about him. In verse 21 of Mark 3, it says, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. He's a lunatic, they said. He's a crazy man, they said. So today's scene continues the action from there. Look at verse 31 of Mark 3. I'll read it to you again. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him. And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he 
is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus' words must have shocked everyone in the room that day. This was a culture where family was everything, where family reigned supreme. You think your family looms large in your life. Jesus' family loomed very large in his life, as did. That was the experience of every young Jewish man and woman in that culture. In that culture, your family was your identity. Your family was your life. So it must have sounded so disrespectful. It must have sounded crazy for this young Jewish man to ignore his family outside. And not only to ignore them, in a sense, but to seemingly deny them. He says, who were my mother and my brothers? And then, to make things worse, he surveys the room and he says, here, here are my mother and brothers. Imagine that this was deeply offensive to his family outside, but it must have been shocking to all the people who were sitting around him. And so we want to look at the very first thing we want to see in this passage is, I want us to see that Jesus was not rejecting his family here, but he was shifting everyone's attention to his other family. He wasn't rejecting his family, but he was shifting everyone's attention to his other family. Here's a helpful way, I think, to enter the scene. Picture it. Jesus is teaching. We don't know exactly the, the content of what he was saying at that moment, but, but it's safe to say that he, it had to do with the kingdom of God. It must have, because that's what he kept talking about. Jesus had consistently been teaching that God's authority and God's power was breaking into this world with his arrival, with Jesus' arrival. That, that he himself had come with the authority of God to establish a, a new order, a new kingdom. But while he's teaching, this important stuff, there's a commotion, a distraction. People, people seem to be passing along a message that came from outside, and they're passing along through the crowd, and finally that message gets to him. And someone tells him, your, your mother and your brothers are asking for you. So as a teacher, Jesus addresses the interruption. And what he says here, it's not just a response it's, it's meant to, to refocus, to redirect everyone's attention back to his teaching. For any teachers here, this is classroom management. This is him saying, everyone, eyes, eyes over here. Let, let's, let's, let's not get easily distracted. Let, let's, let's bring it back. That's what people say. Right? Let's bring it back. And what better way to get the attention of everyone in the room than to say something provocative? but true. Imagine, imagine people wondered how is Jesus going to respond to his family? All of a sudden their attention is right back on him, on, on the words that are coming out of his mouth, exactly where his, their attention should have been. And so they're wondering, what's he going to do? Is he going to pack up and leave like a good Jewish son when his parents call? But he doesn't. Instead, instead he says, who's my family? Your family's outside calling for you. He says, who's my family? This is my family. Now everyone's shocked. And everyone's locked in again. And he's saying, in a sense, what's going on in here is more important than what's going on out there. Now to be clear, again, he was not denying his family. He wasn't even telling his family off. He, he loved his family. 
we, we, this, this becomes clear as we read the gospel narratives, if, as we read the, 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 the very final, read about the final moments of his life, we find that Jesus showed devotion and care for his mother up to his final seconds, his final breaths. As he died on the cross, he looked down at his mother and he looked at his disciple John and he said, he said this is now your son and, and this is now your mother, making sure that she'd be cared for and provided for after he was gone. Jesus loved his siblings. Jesus called out people for not honoring their parents. Two of his brothers would become leaders in his church. So, so you see, Jesus isn't saying, those people out there, don't ma- I don't care about them. I only care about you folks right here. That's not what he's saying. Christ's teaching emphasized the importance of family relationships. We want to do that as a church, too. We want to celebrate family as a gift from God. Jesus' apostles would later teach parents to love their kids and nurture their kids. His apostles would teach kids to honor and obey their parents. So Jesus never disparaged family. But what he does here is he makes an important distinction. He's explaining there is a different kind of family. Beyond the physical and and legal relationships that we have with our parents, with our siblings, with our relatives, there is another kind of family. There's a spiritual family that's bound together, not by blood or lineage, not, not by legal documents, but by something deeper than that. It's the family of God. The family of God. And as much as Jesus loved his mother and he loved his dad, Joseph, who at this point seems to have already passed away, as much as he loved his siblings, it's clear that from, even from a very young age, Jesus recognized God to be his ultimate and everlasting father. He knew that God was his father. So much so that when he was 12 years old and his parents couldn't find him for three days, and they finally located him in the temple. Some of you might know this scene. 12-year-old Jesus disappears Three days they can't find him. They finally find him in the temple. And this scene, if we look back at that scene in Luke, it'll inform the scene that we're looking at today. There are some parallels here. It's interesting. It's an interesting comparison. So his parents find him in the the temple, quote, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, They were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why are you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Sounds kind of rude, doesn't it? Your father and I have been looking everywhere. I've been in my father's house, the temple. I wonder if, I wonder if this, this scene, this memory came to mind for Mary when she heard Jesus' response. This is, he, these are my mother, my mother and brothers here in this room. Verse 50 says, and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. It was confusing to them. So fast forward about 18 years or so. Now, Jesus, an adult, is the teacher. He's not sitting in the temple amongst the teachers. He is the teacher, and others are sitting around him, and they're listening to him. 
And his family comes calling for him again, just like at the temple on that day. And, and it's as if he says to his family and to everyone else in the room, don't you know that I must be in this house with this family, with my spiritual siblings, with these children of my father, God? Jesus was shifting attention away from his physical family to his spiritual family. Now, the second thing we need to see here is that Jesus described his spiritual family. After he gets everyone's attention on the spiritual family, he describes it very briefly. He describes it in at least two ways I'm going to give you. Here's the first way he describes his family. His family does the will of God. Jesus' family does the will of God. Look at verse 34 again of Mark chapter 3. If you have a Bible, you can read it up here. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. My family is made up of those people who do the will of God, who obey God, who do, who do what God wants them to do. Now, Jesus always did the will of God. We've looked at this in the past. In fact, in John 4, Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He's saying, what, what, what sustains me, what I love, what keeps me going is this desire to do what God tells me to do, to do the will of my Father and to accomplish the work that he has given me to do. And here he's saying, my family members are like me. My family members love doing God's will as well. But what does it mean to do the will of God? What does it mean to do? Earlier this year, we looked at the Ten Commandments. Some of you were here for that. We went one by one through these Ten Commandments. We looked at each of them, and we saw that these commandments are, in fact, God's will for us. They tell us how to live. They describe for us how God calls us to exist, to relate to him, to relate to others, to relate to ourselves in this world. We also saw that those Ten Commandments could be summarized really in just two commandments. Love God, love your neighbors. Vertically, love God, honor him, worship him. Love your neighbors, care for them, serve them, protect them. Jesus, in a sense here, when he says, whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother, he could have said, whoever loves God and loves their neighbor is my family. My family is made up of people who love God and love others. This aligns with what Jesus says elsewhere in John 13. He said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In John 14, just a little bit later, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And there, what he's doing, and we've seen this at other parts of Mark, Jesus identifies himself as God. So the will of the Father and the will of Jesus are the same will. The will of God and the will of Jesus are the same thing. So when he says, he could have said, if you love me, you will keep God's commandments. If you love me, you will keep the Father's commandments. He happens to say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But it means the same thing. But notice here in Mark chapter 3 that Jesus did not say, whoever loves God and loves their neighbor becomes my family. 
In other words, he doesn't say the way to become a member of my family is go out, love God really well, love other people well. And if you do both those things, I will welcome you into my household. You'll become a part of the family. It's not at all what he says. You see, obeying God's will, obeying God's commandments is not how we join the family of God. It's simply evidence that we're in the family of God. Obeying God's will, obeying God, is not how we join his family. It's simply evidence that we're in the family. Now, Jesus obeyed God's will perfectly at all times. He's the only family member that's done that. If you are a member of God's family, you would have to say, I've not always done God's will. I do not always do God's will. There are times when I know what God has called me to do. He's told me clearly in his word, and I do the opposite. But perhaps you can also say that when I see that and I realize it, I then do God's will by repenting and confessing that to him. And I come back to him. and say, I've, I've, I've disobeyed you. I've broken your will. And yet, and yet you've told me that when I've broken your will, that you won't kick me out of the family. You've told me to come back to you as your father, to admit it, confess it, lay it out there, turn away from it, and receive grace and receive forgiveness and enjoy acceptance and welcome. Now notice with these words, especially given the, the context that Jesus is, is implying here, is, is the, the context of what Jesus says, here, says them here, he's implying that sometimes doing God's will may in fact mean defying your physical family. Has that ever happened to you where obeying God meant actually you had to disobey your family? Some of us maybe have never had that experience, but others have. Now, it's not that your spiritual family somehow replaces your family of origin. No. But there may be times, there may be times when honoring God may put you at odds with your family. Has that ever happened to you? Jesus is a living example here. He is obeying God by being in that room, teaching, healing, but it put him at odds with his physical family and said, no, you shouldn't be in there doing that. And so he disobeyed them in order to obey God. And the irony here is that Jesus was actually loving his family by doing the will of God. Because he would eventually die for sinners and rise again. He would eventually be arrested and suffer and die. All things that his family would have liked to protect him from and keep him from and would have told him, no, don't do it. He did it. And as a result... All who believe in him are forgiven and saved from their own sin and from the wrath of God, including his family members. My point is simply this, for us, practically speaking, there are instances where obeying God may mean defying the will of your family. It might. And if you're willing, if you humbly, humbly, <laughs> Seek to obey God, even when it means defying your family, you will, as a result, end up loving your family better. You will, in fact, be serving your family, even if they don't see that at the moment. I have a good friend who was getting to know a, a woman who we really liked, and they started dating, and, um, and he, was, he was eager to introduce her to his parents. This was... Uh, 
he was in his, he was in his uh, mid-20s at the time. She was in her mid-20s. When he told his family about his girlfriend, they, they weren't so enthusiastic. He was a Christian man. They were Christian parents. They loved Jesus. This woman loved Jesus too. But there was a problem in his family's eyes. This woman was not the same ethnicity as their family. Not the same culture. And this created an obstacle. And my friend was told by his mother and father, we don't want you to date this woman. We don't want you to marry this woman. Because she's not like us. And he said, no, 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 no. We're all part of the same spiritual family. You say she loves Jesus and we love Jesus. She is like us. And they said, no, 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 she's not. We come from so-and-so. We speak so-and-so. She doesn't. Her family comes from somewhere else. Her family speaks some other language. Our cultures are not the same. We are not the same. And this was a, this was a serious point of, uh, of conflict between them. My friend, in this moment, he had always been a very submissive, obedient son, but in this moment, he realized, and through prayer, and reading God's word, and through the counsel of others, that he was being called to defy his parents. He asked them, is there any other problem that you have with her? Is there anything else about her that, that, that's a problem for you? And they said, no. They told him, in fact, we would prefer that you marry a woman who doesn't love Jesus, who's not a Christian, but is the same ethnicity as we are. Because maybe she can come to love Jesus later down the road. <laughs> we would prefer that than you marrying this woman who loves Jesus but is not like us. He saw that as wrong. He saw it as deeply dangerous. He saw it as anti-gospel. He saw that ethnocentrism and that racism as anti-Christ. And so he said to his parents, I want you to pray about this. I'm going to pray with you. But I want, there are many things from you that I want to inherit and maintain as a legacy from you. But your racist perspectives, I don't want to carry on. I want to put those things to death. He defied them. Humbly, patiently, kindly. He continued to date this woman. That was probably about 10 years ago. They're now married. Her in-laws love her. They repented of their ethnocentrism and racism. They love their grandkids, who are like them in some ways and unlike them in some ways. This young man loved his family by loving Jesus more than his family. He loved his parents by loving Jesus more than he loved his parents. The stories don't always end that beautifully, but they could. They could. Let's push in a little bit more into what it means to do the will of God. All right? Let's push in a little bit more. What does it mean to do the will of God? There's a scene later on in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 9, where Jesus is on a mountain with some of his disciples, and a miracle takes place. Jesus is transfigured. That is, we won't get into all the details of what happens there, but something very special happened, all right? We're going to look at it when we get to Mark chapter 9. It says that in that moment, Mark 9, 7, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. God the Father speaking, and he said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. 
This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So if we want to know, what does it mean to do God's will? What does it mean to obey God? Here's one thing it means. It means we're going to listen to Jesus. Doing God's will, in part, means listening to his son. The people in that room were doing God's will. They were listening to Jesus. In that crowded space in Capernaum, while his family was trying to control him, they were listening to him. I wonder if that reflects us sometimes. I wonder if sometimes, rather than listen to what Jesus is telling us in his word, we want to control him. We want him to get, to get him to do the things that we want him to do. Jesus, please do this for me. Jesus, please do that. Jesus, I need you to do that. Now, there's nothing wrong with us asking Jesus to do things for us. He talks to people in the Gospels that way. He says, what would you like me to do for you? We should tell him. But sometimes I think we spend so much time thinking about the things we wish Jesus would do for us that we don't take the time to actually listen to what he has to say to us. What is he telling us? What does he want for us? What is he teaching us? People in that room were sitting at his feet, not trying to control him, but simply receiving from him. The members of Jesus' family, spiritual family, we listen to Jesus. We must listen to Jesus. We must sit at his feet. Like Peter once said, he said, you, you have the where else will I go? You have the words of life. He has the words of life. He has the words that can give us everything that we need, we need to listen to him. And listening to him begins with receiving and believing his core message. Listening to Jesus begins with receiving and believing his core message. What is that core message? Well, he told us at the very beginning of this gospel, Mark chapter 1, verse 14. It says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. This, this is how we begin to do the will of God. This is where listening to Jesus and beginning to do the will of God starts. In fact, this is where becoming a member of God's family starts. This is how we become a member of God's family. It's not by obeying all his commandments. No, that's simply evidence that we are members of the family when we're trying to obey his commandments. The way we come into the family is by doing this. Repenting and believing in the gospel. Believing the good news that Jesus is in fact God. That he did in fact Come into this world, and with his arrival, the kingdom, the power, the authority of God was breaking into this world to bring rescue and renewal. It begins with believing that Jesus is who he says he is, that he died for people like us, like that, as we're going to see, that, that mess of people in that room on that day, and the mess of people in this room today. He died for people like us, and he rose again. And in doing so, he rescued, he saved. He gave us what we could not get on our own, that is forgiveness and acceptance from God. He won for us eternal life. Doing the will of God begins with believing that message. Doing the will of God and becoming a member of his family starts there. The last thing we want to see about this family, it's the second thing that Jesus says about his family, and we want to see it, and then we're done. He shows us that his family is a beautiful mess. Not only does his family do the will of God, that sounds great, right? We're a bunch of people who do God's will. 
That's something we can hang our hat on. We can be proud of that, right? We do God's will. He also shows us that God's family is a beautiful mess. Some might say a hot mess. I don't know if people use that term anymore. But look, at, look at verse 34. It says, looking about at those who sat around him. Looking about at those who sat around him. Imagine who was around him. Imagine Jesus scanning the room and he's making eye contact with individuals as he goes around. Who's he looking at? Remember, he had been in this town before. He had been in this house before. He's looking at the faces of people, some of whom he had healed just days earlier. They had shown up diseased and half dead, and he had rescued them, healed their bodies. Some of them, maybe it was hours earlier. He sees the eyes of people who have been oppressed by demons, people who are crazed and hurting themselves and others. Just days, if not hours earlier, he sees the eyes of people who had come to him desperate for help. And he says, here's my family. This mess is my family. They belong to me. All those people in that room, they all had stories. They all had messy pasts. They all had broken lives. If they didn't, they wouldn't have come. They wouldn't have even been interested in hearing and getting close to this man who's shown up healing and liberating. They all had struggles. They all had broken relationships. They all perhaps carried some shame, shame and guilt over their past sins that they had committed and shame over the sins that had been committed against them. The ways they had been abused and hurt, they carried all the weight of that into that room. And they showed up just to get some help. And Jesus says, more than help, you're my family. We came for help, and he calls us family. Some of those people in that room had suffered so horribly. They had been ashamed and, and, and ostracized from society. But he... This, this one who, who spoke and acted with the power and authority of God like they had never seen before, this Savior calls us family. A couple of weeks ago, Alex led us through the list of Jesus' apostles. You saw as he looked at that list that it was kind of a, a messy list of people. It was a ragtag group of people. You had some Fishermen, you had some former tax collectors who were extortioners, gangsters of a sort, in league with Rome. And then you had some radical political revolutionary in there too, a zealot. People across the political spectrum, people across the social spectrum, the socioeconomic spectrum. And he calls them to himself and says, you're, you're my family. Your family may have rejected you when you started following me, but, but don't worry, you've got a family now. When Mark wrote this gospel around 60 or 70 AD, God's people were being persecuted throughout the region, throughout the Roman Empire. Some of them were being rejected by their families for, for following Christ. Some of them were being oppressed by the government. So imagine how comforting this must have been. And in one sense, it's shocking when Jesus says, 
here's my family. But imagine how comforting it was for early Christians who were being persecuted, been rejected and marginalized, who felt alone to think, no, 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 we're not alone. He calls us his. We are together. We have each other. But more than that, we have him. We are with him. We are his family. If we look at God's global family today, we see that it's incredibly diverse. It is, in fact, in some ways a beautiful mess. But God's not finished with his family. He's continuing to mold and shape and grow his family. And one day, it will continue to be diverse. It will still be beautiful, all the more beautiful. It'll just be a little less messy. (laughs) Throughout the Old Testament, you might find as you read through it that the idea of, of family and lineage is emphasized again and again. But then by the time we get to the New Testament, it seems like almost all of a sudden the, the attention shifts away from genealogies and, 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 and family, like nuclear families or even, or even just a, a, a lineage, biological or adopted lineage. And it, the attention seems to shift towards spiritual family. God loves his spiritual family. He loves us. If you're a mom or a dad, you ever sit sometimes and look at your family, maybe look at old family photos or look around your family and you just can't help but smile? You just delight. You delight in the reality that this is your family. This is your household. God looks at us and smiles and he delights in the beauty of this family that he has made. So as we end today, I want to ask you, are you in the family of God? Are you in the family of God? One, one stark reality that comes across from the scene is that there is an outside and an inside. There's an inside. He says, these are my family, and then there's an outside. Those who aren't. The good news is that anyone can come in. Anyone can come in by simply believing, receiving Jesus. The beginning of the Gospel of John says that, that Jesus came into the world. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But to whoever did receive him, he gave what? The right to be called children of God. To whoever receives him and believes in him, you are given family status. The right to be children of God. It's interesting. Last week we were asking, what's your take on Jesus? It's as if this week we flipped it. We're saying, what's Jesus' take on you? As he looks at you, does he say, this is my family? Sometimes we spend a lot of time thinking about what we think of Jesus. What does he think of you? Does he say, here's my family. You're with me. Again, anyone can get in by believing in him. And if you are a member of God's family, are you doing the will of God? Are you doing the will of God? Now, again, I said before, no other family member kept God's will, has done God's will perfectly except for Jesus himself. But I'm asking you, do you strive and want to do God's will? And when you fail to do God's will, what is your response? Is it to run away from God, to hide from him, or to simply shrug it off? Or when you fail to do God's will, is your response to go back to him and confess it to him and repent and ask him for help to obey once again? Are you doing the will of it? Because that's his will too, you know, coming back. Are you embracing your family status? Are you living like a member of the family? God said once, God the Father looked down at his son and said, this, he said it twice actually, this is my beloved son 
in whom I am well pleased. He says this about you as well. You, you are my beloved son, daughter. I'm pleased with you, he says. But I wonder if we live in the light of that. I wonder if you live feeling like Jesus, feeling like God the Father is pleased with you. Or do you live feeling like he's constantly disappointed, disapproves? This room was filled with rejects and outcasts who had been welcomed in. But I wonder how many of us who have been welcomed into the family of God still live like we're rejects and outcasts. Like orphans who are on the outside when he's already brought us in. Are you embracing your family status? I, I do believe that the more time you spend with your father and the more time you spend sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his words, listening to what he says to you in this, here in the scriptures, listening to what he says to you as you pray, the more time you spend with him, the more assured you will be of your family status. And the opposite is true too. The less time you spend sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him, listening to his words of assurance and love and instruction, and the more time you spend straying from his will, disobeying him, it's going to cause you more and more to doubt your family status, to wonder, am I really in? Am I really with him or not? And so I encourage you to come back to him again and again and again, sit at Jesus' feet and listen to him in his word, speak to him, and you will find that he is full of words of assurance to you. Are you embracing your family status? In the coming year, God willing, we're going to be looking at the local church and what it means to be a family of God as a local church. We haven't really talked about that so much today. We're going to. But for today, I just want to plant that seed in your mind. I want, to, I, want to, I want to plant in your mind a vision for this spiritual family that God has made you a part of through faith in Jesus Christ. And if he hasn't already, there, you can come in. You can come in through faith in Jesus. And I want to end by giving thanks to the Lord for welcoming us in. Let's pray. Father, <laughs> I don't think, I, I still don't think it's landed on us certainly not on me, the full weight of what it means to be a child of God. And, but we're looking to you and we're trusting that over the course of our lives, as we sit with you and listen to you and speak to you and sit with your people and pray together and sing together and listen to your word together, we're trusting that you will deepen, deepen our awareness, our trust, our conviction that we are yours and you are ours. That we're no longer rejects and outcasts and orphans. No, you've brought us in and you've made us yours. And forever, for anyone here who, for whom that's not a reality, Lord, would you bring them in? Welcome them in. We ask that as you look at each person in this room, would you, would you either tell us or make us members of your family? It's in Jesus' name. In your name we ask. Amen.